This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 5.11 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. They're civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts. I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 5.11 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 5.11 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 456 of Behind the Shield Podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show Luke Roberts. Now, Luke is actually a fellow Brit originally, but spent most of his life in Australia working as a wildland firefighter. And he was one of the many, many men and women that responded to the Black Summer fires that devastated Australia. So we discuss a host of topics from what it was like battling those fires through to his own mental health challenges and a host of topics in between. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it more and more visible for others trying to find a project like this. And this is a free library for you, the audience, internationally. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Luke Roberts. Enjoy. Well, Luke, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I know it's morning there in Australia and evening here in Florida. So um, where exactly on planet Earth are we finding you? Well, first, thanks so much for having me. Um, it's a bit surreal being on the show. Um, and I'm currently uh, in Sydney, in Australia, an hour north of Sydney. So, uh, you know, the, the Opera House and the Bridge, think of that, and just an hour north of there. So it's a, a pretty good place to be. Brilliant. What's the name of the town that you're in? It's uh, called Asquith. So it's like a suburb okay. of the Asquith system. Beautiful. Yeah, I didn't spend a, a huge amount of time there, but I lived in Manly for, I think it was like three months, I think. Um, just oh, uh, just off the Sydney Harbour there. Yeah, beautiful. That'll be the dream. But, uh, you know, baby, family, not affording a place on the beach in Manly anytime soon. Being a firefighter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not on my salary anyway. No, exactly. All right. Well, then, as you know, I love to start chronologically. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. 
Yep. So um, born in the UK, um, on the south coast in Brighton. Um, born in Brighton Hospital, and then spent uh, the next kind of five years uh, moving around kind of <clears throat> the various Brighton areas. Um, when I was about would have been seven or eight, we decided to move a bit more rural. So we moved to Lewis, which is uh, kind of a little country town, um, about half an hour outside of Brighton. Um, still very suburban, but you've got that nice kind of, you know, the downs or the National Park kind of areas. Um, you know, rolling fields and lots of woods and stuff to play in, which was great for me as a kid growing up. You know, mountain bikes and forts and, you know, all that kind of stuff kids love to do. Um, I've got a younger brother and a younger sister. So there's five years between each of us. So my brother's um, just finishing up at university. He's doing history. And then my sister is in her final year of high school, uh, which is which is good. She's enjoying it. Um, she kind of moved schools uh, the last couple of years, but uh, she's really enjoying this, which is great. And um, in terms of family dynamic, I think it's the it's the exception, not the rule anymore. My parents are still together. Um, and uh, they're, they're very happy together, which is great. Um, speaking to so many people, their parents are kind of split up, and they've had various step people in the uh, in the relationship. But uh, yeah, my parents are together, and uh, they're absolutely fantastic, uh, particularly through kind of my journey. We'll go into all that later, but yeah, they're really, really supportive, which is great. Um, Dad started off his career as um, an engineer in the Merchant Navy, and did that for about 10 years. Um, and then my mum, She's Irish, so she grew up in Ireland. Uh, she's adopted, actually. So uh, she grew up in Ireland, uh, moved over to Australia. Uh, my parents met here. Um, my mum studied uh, law and psychology, uh, so she's pretty good um, with all that stuff. Um, she's pretty good at reading people um, and giving good advice when you need it. And, uh, yeah, they met out here. Um, and then my, dad, my dad's visa expired, and he was actually sent home back to England, back to the U.K., so um, my mum went with them. They went back, had three kids, and then decided they were going to come back to Australia. So um, it's been, what, nearly nearly 12 years now we've been here. And, uh, yeah, I've never looked back. Probably the best decision they've ever made for us uh, as a family and kind of opportunity-wise. Beautiful. Now, how old were you when you actually made the move? I was 12, um, and I turned 13. We spent some time in Thailand um, between moving from the UK to here, so... I turned 13 in Thailand, so I um, hit the ground running here at 13, which is um, an interesting time to up and move, I think. Um, I think I handled it okay, um, but obviously, you know, you've just kind of established yourself as a small human, um, you know, teenage years, but uh, yeah, it all, went, it all went really well, which was, which was good. Beautiful. Now, what was it like? So, you, you start off as a British, you know, young British lad. Thailand was quite a change. So, what was that like for you? Thailand was great fun. Um, I absolutely loved it. Um, growing up, I, I did karate. Or I, I dabbled in karate, I should probably say. Um, so I absolutely loved the, um, you know, you'd walk down the street. Uh, we're on the islands, so we spent some time on Koh Tao, um, and obviously in Bangkok. But walking down the street, seeing uh, the Muay Thai fights um, in the gyms, um, and just the culture was, I don't even want to say it was a shock. I just loved it, you know, a tropical vibe. Everyone was so friendly. Um, There's probably stuff that completely went over my head at that age. But uh, yeah, I, I loved it. Um, I really, really like. Um, we haven't actually been back in years to Thailand, but you know, Thailand's a really a place that's really close to my heart. I really enjoyed it, and have really fond memories there. Brilliant. Now I know you know there's let's just say amongst the biggest of the world, because the only way to describe it, you know, there's tension you know between Australia and England and England and Wales and all, all this ridiculousness. <laughs> Did you ever experience yes. that when you were in Australia? Um, 
nothing more than just the uh, you know the occasional jibe. Um, I think it's all in good jest. Um, but you know, I got after probably the first three years we were here, and I was playing rugby. You know, the back of my jersey had Pom written on. Um, I was known as Pom, <laughs> Pommy boy. Um, and yeah, for everyone just, listening, know. what does what does the acronym Pom stand for? <laughs> It depends on which version you go with, <laughs> but uh, officially, <laughs> I believe it's prisoner of her majesty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's funny because they call that that's the kind of term for us. But I mean, that was kind of the running joke, wasn't it? Australia started as a prison colony, so yeah, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the uh, the various spin-offs, which is Whinge and Pom, which is the the classic expat that comes here, doesn't like the heat, spends a few years whinging and goes home. But, uh, <laughs> we have those here too. <laughs> We call them New Yorkers. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they come down here. They complain about our uh, our weather and our pizza, and then they go back. <laughs> and I've been to New York a few times, and I love it. But Jesus, it gets cold. Like I'm, I'm not made for that. I'd much rather be down where you are over here. Yeah. So it shouldn't be so cold that your bones hurt. Yeah, well, I think the, the the snowbirds have got it right. I mean, there's a lot of obviously New Yorkers that love it down here. There's just a you know, small handful that come down and complain. But um, yeah, you know, when it's when it's beautiful in the summer, they spend it up there, and when it starts getting cold, they come down to uh, Florida because our winters are beautiful down here. They're still sunny. They're still you know warm comparatively, but you know it, the humidity is all gone. So yeah, they're they're a pretty smart bunch if you can afford to do that. Absolutely, that's the dream, isn't it? You know, have various places you can spend the best parts of the years, depending on the seasons. Absolutely. Well, I know you went, you know, as we progress through your story, you know, you, like so many people that come on here, went to some pretty dark places. I personally, when I, when I, when I hear a lot of these stories, there seems to be a common denominator with some sort of trauma early in life as well. And that can be a very acute trauma or it can be something more subtle, like a family dynamic. When you look back, were there any elements of your childhood that you think contributed to that? Or were you actually, you know, you look back and think it was a pretty good one overall? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I can't, you know, obviously going through therapy and seeing the psychologist and stuff, they do touch on that. But, um, you know, for the life of me, I can't really pick a time where I wasn't, you know, there was no major trauma, no major unhappiness. You know, everyone everyone has, you know, fights and argues with their family. But, um, I mean, my parents are really, really good. My dad definitely has relaxed over the years. We had some uh, tension during the later teenage years, as I think most sons and fathers do. But um, yeah, I, I really can't fault my, my kind of upbringing. They've been absolutely great. And uh, yeah, I think I'm just fortunate, really. Um, I, I can't say enough about them. They've been absolutely fantastic and uh, you know, supportive through the whole process. And I do wonder if, um, it, to hypothesize, maybe a, a smaller trauma when I was younger would have maybe, maybe made me more resilient. Um, to kind of what what I went through, but um, I don't know. It's uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. See, I think trauma that's been processed before we enter this profession, I think, it makes you more resilient. Trauma that wasn't processed before this profession, I think, it makes you actually more um, at risk of a more acute mental health episode. So, I agree yeah, completely. Yeah. I think if you have that good environment and you go through a trauma and you're able to actually you know, heal from that trauma, absolutely, I think it adds to your armor. But um, I think, sadly, a lot of us don't ever get the opportunity to address the trauma and therefore it's carried in with us. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Actually, you know what, thinking back, nothing nothing through my younger years, um, but pre-season, my mum was diagnosed with a stage three breast cancer. Um, she's in remission now and had the double mastectomy and everything. Um, but, uh, 
again, the, the psychologist and the doctors hypothesized that could have been a contributing factor. Um, you know, everyone's cup is only so full that we handle so much. So, uh, nothing, nothing kind of dating back, but that's probably something that contributed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's an element, definitely. Well, we're going back to your childhood. So you ended up becoming a, you know, a wildland firefighter. So tell me about your kind of athletic background. Were you a sportsman as a kid? Very much so. Um, so I started playing rugby um, as soon as they take me back in the UK. Um, so I think it was under, would have been under sixes. Um, and because of the way the school year works in the UK, I was basically the youngest person in my class, um, short of a few days. Um, my birthday is the start of August. I think the cutoff's like, you know, the 10th or, or midway through. So um, always the youngest, um, not particularly big as a kid. Um, so I started off playing rugby um, and did the, the transition for the players that never kind of have the body type that fits a specific position. So I started off the scrum half and went all the way out to the backs. Um, and then as I got bigger and bulkier, um, kind of through high school, um, all the way back into the forwards and finished up my career playing number eight or an open side flanker. So um, a lot of a lot of change there, a lot of different skills to be learnt. But um, I absolutely loved sport growing up, um, and school in general for me was great. I probably I probably should have tried a little bit harder academically, um, as I think a lot of us can probably uh, attest to. But um, yeah, school was fantastic. So it was just an excuse to see your mates, play some sport, um, and uh, not do too much academic work unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say scrum half i was the same that's where i, I was always tiny so yeah you know, i think scrum half i peaked the next advance i think would be either flagpole or chief orange cutter so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, water boy you can't be water boy because it's heavy exactly well in england everything's frozen anyways there's no point in having a water boy <laughs> <laughs> all right well um what about career aspirations when again in the school age what were you dreaming of becoming yeah, so um, I always wanted to do something that was uh, kind of active. Um, I'm dyslexic, so um, school, regardless of me not trying particularly hard, was always a bit more of a struggle academically. Um, so I always wanted to do something that was um, physical, maybe, um, something that would uh, potentially help people. Um, and I kind of bounced around a few different ideas um, going through school. Um, I finished up kind of thinking uh, military. Um, so I did look into joining the army. Um, and I think I was going through the selection process and it's not like it is, or it seems to be in America or um, other places where it's, it's quite simple. I don't want to say simple, but it seems fairly less competitive to get into compared to here because we don't take that many people on. Um, and they really, really do kind of keep raising the standards every year um, just to try and, you know, cull as many people as possible. Not saying anything to the quality of candidates for other militaries, but it just seems here it gets harder and harder to get in every year. So um, I thought about doing that initially when I finished school. Um, finished school in 2011. Um, started my application and probably wasn't mature enough to really consider the fact that if I wanted this, I might have to actually, you know, put a fair bit of work in kind of academically and, you know, sit down and study for the tests and all that stuff. Um, so that kind of went on for a couple of years. In the meantime, I worked, I worked at a gym. Um, so, you know, Fitness First, the big global chain, um, I worked there for um, about a year, um, kind of trying to get some direction in my life. Um, I always enjoyed training. I've kind of been hitting the gym since I was uh, kind of 15, 16. So that was a, a good place for me at the time. Um, and then I, um, I was out celebrating one night. It was a mate's birthday or something. I can't remember exactly what. But um, 
I ended up falling down the, the gap between the train and the platform um, up to my knee and going over on my right knee um, and basically tearing my ACL, my PCL um, and fracturing my kneecap and all those small little bones and ligaments in the knee. So that kind of put me out um, of kind of the military for a while. Um, and while I rehabbed that, I really had no direction. Um, I really didn't know what I was going to do. Um, so I kind of started thinking, you know, maybe police, um, maybe the fire service. Um, again, here it's really, really competitive to get into the fire service. Um, and I probably wasn't at that level of maturity that I needed um, to kind of really put my head down and um, and start working towards it. So I bummed around for a few years. Um, started working uh, in a bottle shop after the gym um, or liquor store, as you guys would refer to it. Well, that's a natural um, progression from a gym, huh? <laughs> Yeah, especially when you've just done an injury, you know. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. It's uh, not the healthiest environment, but uh, anyway. So I worked at the bottle shop, um, and while I was doing that, I was getting kind of more and more jaded and like, right, I need to sort myself out. What am I going to do? So I decided to sign up for university. Um, I studied uh, security, counterterrorism, and criminology as a double major. And that was uh, through distance or through online. Um, so all the time working at the bottle shop, I was kind of thinking, maybe on the police avenue, um, or something like that. Um, finished up there, decided to move into, so as you can tell, I jump around a fair bit, um, moved into finance. Um, so started working in the city um, doing a kind of big corporate finance job. Um, and as you can imagine, I hated it. I don't think any firefighter is built for that. Um, just horrible. <laughs> the, the environment was toxic. The leadership was lacking. Um, the general health on your body is horrendous because you know you're working sales, so you're doing bonuses, and you're working towards targets. And then when you hit those targets, it's essentially you know a three-day bender, so you go back to the office again. Um, just not not a good environment for a young a young bloke, really. Not someone who's kind of started off training and really enjoying fitness, and then transitioning into into that environment. So I decided to call it there, and I applied for the Navy. Um, the Navy's physical standards um, incorporated my knee injury which was good, um, and I started really getting my head down and started working towards that. So that started at about, that would have been January, I think, January of that year, I started that process, and I went through, um, I was considering going for an officer position as a maritime warfare officer, did all the uh, all the entrance exams, all that fun stuff, uh, was just waiting for an officer selection board, so it's like a panel where you sit down and they interview you to to ascertain your uh, leadership ability and kind of leadership qualities. And all while that was happening, took a fair few months, um, and this RFS job came up, so rural fire service job. Um, and at the time, I just started volunteering um, at my local station um, and thought, you know what, I'm really, really enjoying this, and um, I, I quite like it, so uh, let's, see, let's see how this goes. So this was just an entry-level position uh, as a development assessment and planning officer, um, which... You probably, I don't know if you have an equivalent there. I'm probably thinking something along the lines of maybe like fire marshal um, without the, the enforcement and more kind of on the, uh, the preemptive and the planning stuff. Um, but we'll go into more detail about the role kind of later on. But I uh, started off as a cadet there and basically it was like Navy, fire service. And uh, yeah, went down the fire service route and absolutely never looked back. Um, I'm very, very glad with my decision now. Um, you know, kind of, what, seven, eight years down the track. Beautiful. Now, just for people listening, and myself included, I'm not going to pretend that I'm well-versed in the Australian Fire Service. The uh, rural fire service, is that different to a municipal structural firefighter? 
Yes, yes. So um, we have our main metropolitan areas are covered by Fire and Rescue New South Wales. Um, so they're kind of your your paid um, at station, um, you know, twenty four seven, varying kind of shift patterns, um, and they'll do most of your your metro areas. Uh, now the rural fire service um, covers ninety percent of the kind of the geographical landmass of the state uh, of New South Wales, um, and apart from the back of house staff, um, it's all volunteers. Um, so it's the largest volunteer fire fighting service in the world. Um, we sit about kind of 70,000 members, um, you know, give or take. It's always hard to tell with volunteer fire services how frequent, how active those members are. Um, but that's the number we get quoted. Um, and over kind of Black Summer, it was really, really evident that we had a lot, a lot of people, um, which was fantastic. So, uh, yeah, Fire Rescue, Metro, kind of think of Sydney. Um, that's They're going to be there. And then the Rural Fire Service does all of the fringes, um, the interface with the bush, um, national parks, um, you know, rural areas, um, all the way out to kind of where it starts going red desert type level. Um, so we cover a huge, huge area um, with varying, varying, um, you know, vegetation formations, varying topography. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's pretty impressive when uh, we start mobilising. Just realise how many volunteer firefighters there are in Australia. It's uh, it's pretty cool. Now, do you guys have any of the um, the wildland firefighter groups that come through the prison systems that we do here? No, we don't. Um, and I don't know why, because it would actually be a really really good idea. I think because a lot of our offenders are um, kind of not not on that kind of extreme high risk category. Um, so it could be an option. But again, I think Australia is so we're very, very risk adverse uh, in terms of um, kind of corporate structures and organizational structures. I don't know if it would ever, ever get off the ground, but I do think it would definitely be um, a benefit, particularly after kind of the last few years where we really started focusing on asset protection zones and, and fire breaks and stuff like that. At the moment, the RFS or the Rural Fire Service, we have paid crews that go out and do fire breaks and clear trails and all that stuff. But uh, it's definitely a resource that kind of we're not we're not utilizing. Yeah, and the role that you have was that actually a pay position. Yep, yep. So I'm a volunteer. Um, I was a volunteer officer last year. Um, obviously, with everything going on um, with my PTSD, I let that role slide. Um, I didn't get voted in that year, um, and then also day to day, nine to five, or more than that, kind of seven to four. Um, I'm in the office in at headquarters doing the um the fire compliance side so yeah it's basically i basically spend six or seven days a week doing something rural fire service related which my missus loves <laughs> well speaking of that i've had um yeah a few wildland firefighters on recently the most recent was ben who's a hot shot here um and you know one we're talking about proactive one of the things that seems to be you know, an issue is we're building in the bush. And I know, you know, especially in, in Australia, that's that's historically been a place where a lot of people are settled. Um, so rather, you know, you have one of two things. Obviously, tell people you can't build houses anywhere in the wildland interface or you at least put proactive plans and education in place so they actually clear their own fire breaks around their own property. So with you being in prevention and being in the proactive side, what are some of the... The kind of philosophies in FRS to try and protect the, the properties that are out there. Yeah, that's a really good question. So, I think historically the earnest, well, not the earnest, but the the general public will assume it's probably the same over there as well. You know, if there is a fire, a fire truck will rock up to your house, and your house will be saved. 
Um, very, very unrealistic expectation when you consider how many houses there are and how many trucks we have. But um, that seems to be the kind of the general public's uh, perspective on the fire service. Um, over the last few years, the rural fire service have really pushed out the message that um, you know it really is on it's on ownership. You know, if you're a property owner, it really is on you to maintain your property so it's at least defendable. Um, in terms of fire breaks and clearing, um, that can be quite a complex issue here because we have so much. You know, we have so many amazing categories of flora and fauna, all this amazing wildlife and all this habitat that you don't see anywhere else in the world. Um, you are, we are kind of limited to what we can clear um, through environmental kind of legislation. Um, that's, that's another rabbit hole we can go down. But I don't think we're doing a bad job with that. I do think that's fantastic that we maintain as much bush and as much natural environment as we can. But if we're doing that, we really need to start considering where we allow kind of new land use in terms of you know new developments um new subdivisions and all that stuff we don't really have the ability to say no to a lot of these developments um because i don't know if you're aware but housing prices in sydney are ridiculous um i think it's like the one of the top five most expensive cities to live in the world uh, based on property value and property price so there really is that um that, that political pressure um to make sure that you know there's enough houses for everyone um and that's you know they're they're a, in a position where people can commute to the city and you know go to go and fill the jobs that are required there now i don't have a solution for the overall picture but i do think if we were stricter on land use and control we may not have um as much exposure or you know as much threat in the future moving forward if we continue to get seizures like 2019 2020 i just think um if we continue to have seasons like that what we're currently doing isn't viable moving forward. Now, what about back burning? Because again, a lot of the wildland people I speak to in forest service, um, you know, men and women, it seems like, you know, that's what nature would do on its own. Will we not, you know, inhabiting it, inhabiting it? Um, and it seems again, you said about environmental pressures. I know there's a lot of, you know, these, these, these subdivisions are, are created in the middle of a wildland interface. And then the residents throw a stink about, the smoke so they don't want firefighters back burning um mm. obviously you have to be cognizant like you said of, of nature but is that uh, a powerful tool that's underutilized in the australian fire service too i think overall i think we're probably one of the one of the leaders in um in, in hazard reductions so for our terminology hazard reduction is where we're burning off areas to reduce the fuel load um and a backburn is an operational phrase for when we're um, burning veg before the fire gets to it, which I think you might call a burnout um, or backfire. If I, I don't, I'm not so sure what it's referred to there, but yeah, so we've got the distinction there. So hazard reductions um, are a big topic every year here. Um, a couple of years ago, we had a big weekend of hazard reductions planned around the Sydney Basin um, on Mother's Day, um, and there was also a, a, like a like a half marathon event on in the city. Um, and basically through, you know, three or four hazard reductions around the, uh, the metro area, we smoked the city out. Um, and a number of people um, were taken to hospital with, you know, breathing complications because of that. Um, that's a really, really tricky one. You know, we want to protect life and property as much as possible, but at the expense of people being taken to the emergency room through kind of smoke-related health issues um, on Mother's Day of all days. Um, 
it gets really, really tricky there. I think in an ideal world, more burning would be better, particularly around the interface. Um, but as we saw through 2019, 2020, um, there were fires that were burning through areas that had already been burnt a couple of years before, um, and then coming back through the crown, um, you know, a few days later when we had a wind change. So it's definitely not the silver bullet, but I think it's something that could be utilized probably over the world um, a bit more frequently. Yeah, well, it just seems that, again, you know, when you look at Mother Nature, um, you know, she she regenerates. And Ben had a good good kind of way of putting it. He's like, the the wildfires are the only, um, how did he put it? You know, weather or na- national disaster, is it? The only national disaster that we try and fight and I was like, oh, yeah, that's yes. a good point. So, you know, everything else, we just let it run its course. You can't stop a hurricane. You can't stop an earthquake. Um, so, you know, yes, a prescribed burn would put smoke into said city, but an uncontrolled burn would burn down said city. So, again, you know, where is that happy medium where the residents of that city just have to be aware, hey, we're doing this. You're going to – it's going to suck for a couple of days, but it's going to keep your home safe. And that's exactly it. And um, like working working at headquarters, um, we obviously have a finite amount of phones. Um, and when we get those um, hazard reduction weekends where we smoke the city out, the phones are just nonstop. You know, people somehow get hold of operational phone lines and they start calling, complaining about the smoke. Um, and I, I completely agree with you. Where uh, what what do we do? Do we leave the city on? Um, you know, an absolute knife edge in terms of letting the vegetation come all the way up to the interface. Um, not managing that fuel load, um, and then when it really does come through, um, you know, smoke inhalation is the absolute last thing on your mind because you're you're running away from the fire front. Um, it's a really really complex topic. I'm probably not the smartest person to talk about it, but I don't have a solution either. I think we do the absolute best we can, um, and I think we do a good job overall. Um, but I think any any area that's bushfire prone or wildfire prone, more burning would kind of always be beneficial, I think, just because it's so hard to get those optimal windows. Um, so if we ignore the smoke and everything and the smoke lingering in the Sydney Basin, we have to consider things like, you know, fuel moisture, fuel load. Last time it was burnt, are we burning it too frequently? We're we going to change the ecological formation. Are we burning it not frequently enough where now we're getting, you know, um, invasive species, you know, lantana and, um, you know, non-native vegetation start to come through. It's There's just a plethora of issues that, as soon as you start addressing one, you just dig up three more. It's um, it's a really, really hard one to try and address. But I think we do the best job we can. It's very interesting. Now, with with the firefighters themselves, one thing I didn't ask you: what is the what are the kind of fitness tests to walk through the door? And do you have annual retesting? Mm, this is a topic I'm very passionate about. So when I so I go back a little bit. So the nineteen the twenty nineteen twenty twenty bushfire season. Um, I took a secondment with uh, New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service. Um, so I went over there to join the catchment area fire crew um, or remote catchment area fire crew um, known as Craft. Um, and the idea of that crew is basically an initial attack. Helicopter crew, you fly over um, to ignitions, winch down um, and fight those fires. Um, we call it remote area work, remote area firefighting. Now for remote area firefighting, all agencies do have a, a fitness level um and a medical so it'll be that generic pack test that i think i think we actually stole it from you guys it's 4.8 k is carrying 20 kilos in under 45 minutes or something like that yeah uh, that is in the rural fire service the only fitness test 
So if you're not doing remote area stuff, if you're just going to calls, and remember, we're not a metropolitan fire brigade. We're going bush 90% of our calls. Um, but if you decide not to do remote area firefighting, there is no fitness or medical requirement for you to jump on a truck and go fight fires, which is, um, in my opinion, dangerous, um, not only to the members um, and their crew, but also sets a really, really poor expectation um, in terms of the future of the service. Now, there are a number of political issues around the fitness test. Obviously, we want 70,000 volunteers. We want as many volunteers as we can have. But at the expense of not having a fitness level, um, particularly for operational frontline firefighters, I think is a is a massive misjudgment. Um, I might get in trouble for this, but you know, I think it's something that has to be raised. Um, you know, that we have a role for everyone. I do agree that the Royal Fire Service and all volunteer services have a role for everyone. You know, you don't have to be on the on the pointy end with the hose. You know, there's logistics, there's planning, there's um, you know maintenance, there's all kinds of things that can be done. Um, but no fitness standard, no medical for frontline firefighters is um, a big issue, I think, and will have to be addressed moving forward because I just don't think we can maintain the way we are at the moment. Well, do you also have um, an issue that we have here and I talk about it? Like I understand completely, you know, if you're four hours west of Alice Springs and you live in a tiny little, you know, town in the outback, I get it. You know, you're probably going to have to have volunteers. And if one of the, you know, 50 houses in that town goes up, then you're it. But what we have in the U.S. is a lot of volunteers are lent on in very affluent suburban areas where they should have career firefighters. You know, it's ridiculous that they haven't you know, just basically gone to residents and say, hey, enough is enough. You know, we're a very affluent area. We need to start paying taxes and having a highly trained, you know, full-time crew. Do you see yeah. that same kind of thing in Australia where some of the volunteers are working in areas that basically should be career fire departments? Um, definitely. Definitely when you start going um, to kind of the, the emerging rural areas. Um, we have a lot of, we call them retains. Um, so they're part of fire rescue, um, but they are on-call firefighters and they'll get paid when they rock up to a pager call. Um, that is a big issue when you start going kind of to, to more rural areas. Um, but even for areas like myself, where we are in, in Kuringai, um, we're on the interface of, you know, let's be honest, no one cares about Melbourne. It's all about Sydney. <laughs> we're on the interface of, you know, the, the city in Australia. Um, and, you know, I was out two days ago um, at an assist ambulance job. Um, you know, a lady had fallen, broken her ankle, um, and she needed to be extricated. Turns out she was um, extricated by a helicopter and the paramedics uh, winched her out. But I mean, we responded to that. And we responded to that with fire rescue, so the full-time paid guys, because they only had a crew of three that day. Um, we managed to get, okay, yes, it was a weekend, and yes, a lot of people are around over Easter. But we managed to get 12 firefighters rolling, one truck, one light vehicle. Um, and basically, if it was a carrier, it would be 90% us. Um, so I do, I do think we get lent on quite heavily for things like um, carryouts, um, anything bushfire related, um, and to some extent, uh, motor vehicle accidents, accidents as well. Um, my, my station doesn't currently have breathing apparatus, which is a whole other issue we're we'll really? getting to later. Yep. So we don't have breathing apparatus, um, but we're still expected to respond to motor vehicle accidents. Um, we don't get many of them in our area, um, but there is that expectation. 
Um, and I also run training for, um, we call it village firefighter, which is, you know, kind of small, rural, semi-rural, uh, firefighting, uh, motor vehicle accidents and things like, uh, gas and a very, very basic level of hazmat understanding. Um, so I think while we do have the coverage, um, unlike some places you alluded to in America, uh, we do have paid coverage. Um, there isn't sufficient coverage considering how quickly Sydney is growing and the, the massive explosion in population density. So it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next few years. Yeah, I mean, just it seems like it's a you know a systemic thing, you know, in the UK and in the US where the priorities seem to be so shifted. You know, the to me the most basal priority is is safety and health. You know, <clears throat> so we're talking about you know our police, our fire, our you know corrections and all these things, and then you know the the healthcare system and then education. You know, and so many of those professions I just mentioned, especially in the UK, where you know the docs and nurses are under the NHS, should be completely supported, but they're not. They're cut and cut and cut. And we have you know fire stations that are closed down or browned out, and you know police stations, well police um, cars. You know they used to drive two to a car, now they're one to the car, and it just seems like it's absolute lunacy. You know, that should be before streets and parks. I mean, don't get me wrong. We need, you know, our kids to be able to play safely. But, you know, yeah, yeah. everyone's... You need cops to be safe, though, first. Yeah, exactly. But but also, you know, I mean, like the, the cars and the houses here, you know, we're a very, very fortunate, affluent country as a whole. We got poorer areas, of course. But as a whole, as a nation, we're very, very affluent. So we should have the most, you know, supported um, fire departments and police departments. But, you know, some areas have great paid ones highly staffed ones and a lot of areas are are not and they're leaning on volunteers which is just crazy so I, yeah, there needs to be almost like a global discussion the people that you're going to ask to save your child's life should probably be paid and should probably be there all the time not at the end of a pager and when they're in the middle of a plumbing job have to drop everything and drive 20 minutes to even get to their fire station absolutely and it's not we like volunteers in america they seem to be Okay, funding seems to be a constant issue I hear just reading through, you know, some articles. But uh, at least you get given the equipment required to do the job. Um, the fact that we don't have breathing apparatus, given the day and age, is, uh, I mean, I work for the service, so I have to be careful what I say. But uh, it's just not acceptable I'll in say this it. day and age. It's not acceptable. On, yeah, it's not acceptable. <laughs> given all the research on, you know, contaminants, um, you know, the... The, the reduced life expectancy of firefighters based on inhaled um, irritants and contaminants. Um, it's, yeah, it just boggles my mind. And, you know, we, we had this vote at the brigade recently. We're going to be implementing breathing apparatus. And we still had people opposed to forking out some of our own brigade funds, which we don't work for. You know, they are donations. We had people pushing back against the fact that we were going to use some of our brigade funds to implement breathing apparatus in KBAR. I just, yeah, it was an interesting meeting, um, but I just scratch my head and think, you know what? If this is if this is the mentality of the service, I don't know if I want to be here anymore. It just really, really frustrated me and upset me. Well, I think that's just it. I mean, from an administration point of view, from a union point of view, from an individual firefighter or you know medic or whatever profession we're in point of view, if life safety isn't your first priority then you're in the wrong job and if you're talking about a group of men and women who are going to respond and let's say you have you know a ute as you guys call it 
upside down and it's partially on fire and you can't get close to it because you haven't got BAs and you'll basically inhale, you know, gases and you'll be dead as well, then you can't facilitate yeah. a rescue. You come across, you know, let's say, like you said, the crews are out on something else and you're the ones banged out on, on a structure fire. How the hell are you going to make entry without a pack? You know, so, you know, you, it's, yeah. it's basically, it shows me that again, the priority of the people we serve is at the bottom. The priority of you guys and your health is at the bottom. And it becomes this, you know, numbers and Excel spreadsheets. And our professions are not about that. They're about how can we set our men and women up to be the most effective rescuers possible and to be the healthiest we can make them while they're doing this profession. Absolutely. And I, I do think our services as a whole is moving in the right direction, but it just seems very, very late. You know, we're coming in at half time here with breathing apparatus and stuff like that. Um, mental health support um, is starting to get a lot of traction as well, which is great. Um, but, you know, where was the mental health support when I needed it 18 months ago? I, I don't want to say that. That sounds bad. That sounds whingy. Um, but you know what I mean? Like the fact that we have to implement that now when we knew we had a bad season coming and the season was continuing. It just seems it seems retrospective to the extent of we didn't think about anything other than operational stuff during the season. You know what I mean? It's, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to rant too much. <laughs> no, you're in the right place. Rant away, I do. Um, <laughs> well, I what about... Wanted, you know what I want to do? I want to touch back on the, on the fitness thing. Please. Um, so... Um, you know, as, as you know, we've spoken before, I didn't have a very good 1920 season. Um, but before that I was in pretty good shape. Um, I let myself go after over the kind of 18 months of my recovery. Um, but you know, I'm getting back into shape now, but, um, the, the lack of drive from people to get fit for their, for their role, you know, whether it be volunteer or, or professional, um, or, or salaried, I, I struggle with that. What, and if you've had co- these conversations with you know heaps and heaps of people, how how do you go about implementing a change for people that don't want to change? So for me personally, um, you know, one of the most important things is having the bar set high at the front door. So when you're talking about volunteers, that's very hard to do because you're saying, hey, I'm not going to pay you, but I need you to be at this level, which is why again, career as much as you can allows you to control that. Another thing I think is you have to have a double-edged sword conversation where there's ownership, but there's also an environment to encourage people to thrive. So perfect example, let's take the, the federal firefighters here. So they work 24 on, 24 off. So they're on like a 72-hour work week where you can be, you know, gung-ho on day one and, and you know, be in shape and all that stuff. Those shifts are going to break you down they're going to destroy you so if there's not an acknowledgement of how we work on men and women and the impact that causes on their hormones and their motivation and all these you know their mental health then we're missing a big part you walk into a guy that's been on for 15 years who is just fucking destroyed physically and mentally and say oh you're a piece of shit because you don't work out well we're missing you know a huge part of that puzzle now, if you yeah. educate them on all the elements and we give them an environment to start working out and, you know, teach them about sleep deprivation and maybe change shifts so that they get enough rest and recovery, they hopefully will then get back to where they were. If they refuse to do it, that's a whole different story. That's a person that shouldn't be in that department, period. But we, we put everything on the shoulders of our men and women in the first responder professions. And many, many places give them none of the tools to actually thrive. And the NHS is a perfect example. 
they cut and cut and cut. And when COVID came, what did they do? They just told everyone to stand out and clap. Well, that's not cutting it, you know, and these poor men and women in, in, in that system, which I adore. I think the NHS as a, as a philosophy is amazing. Everyone has healthcare. I mean, beautiful. But we have to staff that accordingly. We have to, you know, create the beds, the space and have more doctors and nurses than we need. So when you get COVID, when you get a terrorist attack, whatever it is, you have that buffer to be able to react appropriately and not work those men and women into the ground. Because I guarantee you study the mental health of, you know, the frontline workers this next year, you're going to see a, a spike in, in that area, as well as domestic abuse and all these things that we've seen amongst the civilians. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I really liked what you were saying, you know, saying to a bloke who's been on the job 15 years and he's absolutely destroyed, you know, sort your shit out. Yeah, it's, it's not going to work and it's not going to help anyone. But, you know, it's, it's a, it shouldn't get to that stage, really, should it? It shouldn't get to that stage. He should be, you know, guided through his career. You know, here's the best stuff to do for your, you know, your mental health. Let's try and focus on recovery so you don't, you know, have no cartilage in your knees at the time you're 40. Um, yeah, it's a really, really good point. I do wonder, moving forward, particularly with uh, with our service, how that's going to go, because we have a, a quite an aging population, um, and a lot of younger members coming through. We have a big void in the middle, um, and I think you know if it would have been great to kind of capture that middle age group to implement fitness and kind of get that fitness mentality um, and recovery mentality embedded. Um, as these younger members come on board, you know, post nineteen twenty season. Absolutely. Well, speaking of that, so leaning on, you know, not not only the career but the seventy thousand volunteers, and we watched from afar, you know, just in awe and you know, heartbroken for you guys at the same time. So, so tell me about Black Summer. Yeah, um, it was pretty intense, <laughs> as the uh, as the name suggests. So. My season started um, kind of earlier than most. Um, so there's three aspects I'll touch on. So I was a volunteer, still am a volunteer, Royal Fire Service staff member, which I still am now. And then during the season, I went over to national parks on a secondment with the attack crew. Um, so I jump around a little bit, but that's kind of the three three facets I was involved in with the season. Um, so the season kicked off fairly early. Um, so in my salaried role with the RFS, um, I do something called building impact assessment, um, which is basically just rapid damage assessments for structure losses. Um, so we're going through um, locating um, structures that have been impacted by fire um, and essentially just tallying the numbers, um, which can can make you pretty callous and pretty numb after you know you go to your, your 10th house of the day and see the family who've lost absolutely everything just standing there. Um, and you can offer them a bottle of water uh, and some crisis pamphlets and that's about it um but anyway so my season started with that um and then the season kicked off in earnest um during a it was pretty much one lightning event that seemed to kick everything off uh, if i remember correctly it would have been about november um, which is when the gospels mountain fire started um from a lightning strike um so at this at this point i'm now with uh national parks as part of the catchment remote area fire team um, and our primary responsibilities and duties are respond to um, ignitions uh, in the national park um, and the catchment water area for Sydney. And what, just, um, just and to interject, I'm sorry, mate, just interject for a second. What what kind of weather had you seen leading up to that? Was there was there a big drought? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for picking me up on that. I completely left out the uh, the conditions that led to this. 
Um, so we were out for um, a significant period, um, years and years and years and years, um, with very, very little rainfall, obviously, because it's a drought. But uh, even in the periods of rainfall, the rainfall we were receiving was, uh, was minimal. It wasn't like it was completely dry. I mean, out west it was, but it wasn't like we didn't experience rain. Like I know sometimes LA, you hear about them going for like six months with no rain or something crazy like that. Um, we had some, it just wasn't enough. Um, from memory, I think we're in about a 300 to 400% deficit of fuel moisture, what we needed to, uh, to bring it back to kind of a normal level. Um, so as you can imagine, we've got that occurring and then we've got um, significant summer storms, which we normally have um, coming through kind of October, November, December. Now, those storms ignited a number of the major fires, including the Gospers Mountain Fire which was the, uh, the one that got the most um, kind of airtime because it basically burnt, you know, a landmass equivalent to England or something stupid like that. Um, it was just absolutely unbelievable, the, uh, the scale um, of the fire. But uh, so with national parks, we're responding up to those jobs. Um, and what we were finding was the tactics that we utilized um, kind of in the last few years just weren't working. Um, we were doing very, very think kind of hotshot type um, attack styles. Um, so winching in, um, essentially cutting a line um, and trying to get the fire to self-extinguish. Um, and we were finding that the the conditions were so dry that we were cutting line, and uh, you know the fire was burning through the dirt. Essentially, it was just burning through everything we cut. We uh, we didn't get very many wins that season, unfortunately. Um, I think it was. I'm trying to remember the name. I think on one particular fire. I worked on it for 10 days, not, not consecutively, but I did, I did 10 days there. Every day we had it somewhat contained and every day it breached containment by, uh, by the next morning. So we've got conditions like that brewing. Um, everyone was prepared for a larger season, um, but I think it just, it just hit too quickly. Um, there was hardly any lead up time. It was like, you know, one week we're good, the next week the state's on fire. So I spent most of my season around um, the Sydney metro area. So I was working up in the Blue Mountains, which for those who aren't familiar is about kind of two hours west of Sydney. Um, it's the Royal Heritage, sorry, it's the Royal National Park and it's um, heritage listed. So um, pretty much if you've seen photos of Australian bush, you've probably seen photos of the Blue Mountains. It's uh, pretty picturesque and it's called the Blue Mountains because the uh, the eucalyptus off vapors um, and gives this kind of weird blue tinge to the sky, which looks absolutely amazing. Uh, but most of the World Heritage area was burnt over the season. Um, and I worked pretty much kind of up and down that area, um, north up to kind of Ralston, which is a couple of hours north of there, um, and then down south briefly. I didn't actually spend a whole heap of time that season away um, from kind of Sydney, even though there were heaps of fires going on um, all around. We are. <laughs> We definitely had our work cut out where we were. So, as far as the the devastation, there was there was a fire here that I'm actually hoping to get one of the dispatches from. But it was uh, Paradise in California, and you know they had yes. a, a horrific loss. You know, not only people's homes and pets, but you know actual people that couldn't escape the fire, and you know it was it was horrific. So overall, the the entire fire, like what what were the fatalities for that particular um, wildfire? Um, so Gospers wasn't particularly um, bad in terms of life loss. Uh, property was astronomical. Property was ridiculous. I was pulling out some figures. I don't want to be 
Um, I don't want to appear callous by underquoting or overquoting. Um, so essentially for the season, um, we lost 2,448 homes. Now, that doesn't seem that much when we compare it kind of to American wildfires. Um, you guys seem to experience far more property loss, but for us, that's that's kind of massive, um, just based on kind of population density and, and all of those things. But um, that was just in New South Wales, um, and then we go to fatalities. I've got the all the reports up, um, just having a scan through them. But uh, it was pretty astronomical in terms of numbers. Okay, so here we go. We've got 6.9% of the state burnt. Um, for those unfamiliar with the geographical scale of Australia, that's big. That's very, very big. <laughs> <laughs> um, huge, huge. Um, and we lost 26 people overall. Um, I won't go into the specific fires they were lost at. Um, but that's 26 um civilian casualties, and then we also lost the number of firefighters. Um, the firefighter losses um, for us hit very, very hard. Um, of course, a firefighter loss hits hard, um, but we had a pretty good track record over the last few years of a minimal firefighter loss. Um, yeah, so one of the, one of the fires um, that we'd flown in on, uh, called the Green Wattle Fire, um, Basically, that ignited um, overnight. Storm band came in in the evening. Um, we'd all headed off from the from the airbase for the day, and um, came in nice and early. We knew we knew it was going to kick off, so we came in nice and early. Um, and we had two two crews on the ground ready to go. Sorry, not on the ground, but at the airbase, ready to go for this this fire, Green Wattle. Uh, there were a number of lightning strikes in the area, but this was the one of particular concern because it had the potential to jump up onto a plateau. And basically be driven in by the westerly winds straight into a uh, southwestern Sydney. Um, so we're all at the airbase, ready to go. My um, my SFO, so my senior field officer, um, Brendan Wilson um, and Toby Citri, um, who was the senior field officer on the other crew, uh, they went up and did an OBS flight. So they flew over um, and triaged these um, these ignitions. And uh, you know we we had a plan in place. We were there. We were ready to go. Um, and we get we get grounded for some reason. I, I don't know what happened, um, and I don't want to speculate too much because I don't know. But for whatever reason, we're at the pad. We're ready to go. We have a strategy. You know, it's still early in the morning. The conditions are manageable. The fire's not gotten too big, um, and we end up getting grounded and having to wait. So we're hanging around at the airbase for I don't know four or five hours until about lunchtime. Um, we finally get the green light to go up. Um, and get around it. Um, so we've got two aircraft um, and about eight firefighters. Um, in the in the meantime, the rural fire service also have a helicopter, um, which is based about an hour south of where we were. They've lifted off. They've flown into this fire. Um, it's midday, kind of the heat of the day now, um, and this fire's just going. It's absolutely going. So uh, we lift off as well. Um, we head over. Um, and basically, there's nothing we can do. We fly over this fire, and um, you know we can see it crowning. It's starting to run up this escarpment, heading towards kind of the. Uh, well, it's not running towards the interface because it's a fair way off, but uh, it's starting to make some serious headway. Um, so we actually get we get dropped off um, at a small airbase, kind of in the middle of the national park, um, and our aircraft goes and picks up some of the other guys from the rural fire service because they winched in, um, and the fire just went bang. Um, I don't think it's a judgment on them at all. I think the conditions for the season were just basically impossible to read. 
we had no idea what was happening. But uh, yeah, you know, we uh, we went and picked a few of those guys up, and they said, yeah, never seen anything like it. Um, you know, they were running through creeks and you know basically trying to get into the black to make sure they were safe because this fire was just going. Um, so we all ended up packing up for the day and heading off because um, we'd lost it. And there's nothing we could do. We're in a small aircraft with a crew of four or a crew of three on hand tools. Um, it's not like hot shots where you've got you know 20, 20 guys and girls at a time. Um, we're fighting in much much smaller groups. Um, so ultimately we had to we had to leave it. Um, and this fire burnt for um, a couple of weeks, um, and ultimately cost the lives of uh, two firefighters. They were um, on the interface. So where we were out in the bush like that escarpment i said before it had gone up over the escarpment and straight into town um they were pretty much on the interface of town along with a bunch of other strike teams and vehicles um and uh yeah there was a, a vehicle accident and uh two guys passed away which uh yeah i mean i i didn't know either of them um i know some guys in my crew were quite close with them um but that really burns me up the fact that we could have had this fire wrangled up um and for whatever reason there may have been justification there may have been you know an absolute reason why we didn't go and fly in on that fire that day. Um, but that was just one of those things, like a long list of the season, things that shouldn't have happened or things that kind of, we sat there and they just, they happened and we felt like we had control where we could have potentially stopped it. You always have that what if, what if factor, don't you? But um, yeah, that was, that was pretty hard, even considering I didn't know the guys, you know, you know, never want to see a firefighter down. Um, but knowing that potentially we could have had an impact on that situation, just, uh, yeah, really, really, really burnt me for a significant time. Yeah, I mean, losing, you know, losing anyone is horrendous, especially, you know, when you look back and it was preventable. I mean, there's some of these events, you know, very few, but there are some where you're like, no matter what happened, you know, that that was still, that person was still going to die. But when it's, like you said, uh, you know, an event where when you look back, oh, man, if we just were allowed to do the, uh, this this thing that we were hoping to do, then... You know, that crew never would have been there or the fire never would have had the, you know, the intensity that it did. And, you know, it's easier to, to Monday morning quarterback it. But yeah, I mean, the, the what if I think is so, so toxic in your mind after the event. It is. It is. I think, I mean, I've, you know, I say to other people, you know, you can't do the what if, the what if, but uh, being so close to impact this small little fire, just, yeah, it's just one of those things, this over that season just yeah really really got to me um i kind of it's one of the one of the contributing factors i think for kind of going down the ptsd rabbit hole um i think i'm straight off on a tangent because i haven't really discussed anything other than one incident <laughs> we'll carry on then but, uh, okay well how long have we got <laughs> um so that's that's probably um that was so that was i was trying to think that was early in the season um compared to kind of what what occurred after that so um that so those guys those guys passed away on um on an evening um where we were up in um another area we were up at the uh, in the wallamai national park and uh we basically we were we were shorthanded pretty hard so me and one of the other guys um we were in a in a light vehicle um, it's called a striker. So think of like a like a Land Cruiser chassis with um, a small water tank on the back and a little pump. Um, we don't have the luxury of you know F Ford fifties and all that stuff. Although I wish we did. Um, so our, our smaller firefighting appliances are, are much much smaller. So we're up there that day and um, 
the conditions again just could not pick them and you know i've not been around for forever but uh these conditions i just i just could not figure out was what was going on with the with the weather that day um it all seemed nice and benign we've got kind of temperature in the kind of the high 20s we've got humidity kind of about 20 to 30 percent so kind of a manageable level nothing's going to go tinder dry too quick um and very very little wind and we spent we're up there for three days and we spent the first day basically chasing fires around a paddock um to try and help this landowner keep his cattle um there was just us and a bulldozer um for probably a i don't know a five kilometer fire front uh, fairly benign not going too crazy but uh, still a lot of work to be done um the next day finally get reinforcements which was fantastic um, we're basically watching this fire trickle up this uh, this road. Um, again, thinking there's us and a bulldozer. <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> um, you know, we're a crew of two as well. It's not like we're running a full truck. So us and a bulldozer just sitting there waiting. And uh, you know, you you see the lights in the distance. You think, ah, thank fuck. So uh, five appliances rock up. Uh, different categories. So we have a, a category one fire appliance, uh, category one tanker which is the one you'd probably see on the news if you ever watch um, New South Wales fire footage. Um, larger, takes a crew of six. Um, we have a Cat 7, a Category 7, which is smaller. Again, could take a crew of six, but it's probably about half size. Um, and then Cat 9s, Category 9s, or Strikers, depending on which agency you work for, which is those Land Cruisers with slip-ons. So we get these reinforcements, which is fantastic. Uh, and like I said, the day's fairly benign. So we're kind of hanging out for the day. Um, we're just patrolling this edge. Um, this is really, really remote. We're probably two hours in um, to the bush. Um, there's not a whole heap of uh, access. Um, but, you know, it's it's looking manageable, which is great. So we're talking to these landowners. Um, lovely. We meet this lovely couple, offer us tea and biscuits. Um, they basically retired to this area, put all their savings into um, a hazelnut farm. You know, they bought the trees, planted. The trees have been growing for a couple of years, and the trees were just you know, next year they were going to harvest. Um, lovely, lovely couple. Look after us really, really well. So I spent the day patrolling up and down there. Uh, heat of the day passes, which is obviously nice. And then um, it all goes to shit. It all goes to shit with zero warning. So all the firefighters that do wildland or familiar with wildland, you'd be familiar with, um, you know, your watch outs. Um, you know, you're watching the weather. You're always monitoring your humidity. Is there a sudden drop in humidity? Is the wind picked up? all those things and uh, there was no warning and basically this fire just popped out of the bush and just completely involved where we were um jumped over the road which was going to be our safety refuge um but the fire was too intense jumped over into a paddock um and uh basically we just had to scramble so there was us and a few other guys um in different appliances sitting up there and uh you know we promised this couple you know if the fire comes we'll come back We'll come back. We'll come back. Um, don't worry. You'll have an appliance with you. Don't stress. No, it's not nothing too crazy today. Hopefully nothing happens. Um, and it got to the stage where we couldn't even drive back down the road to go and help them, um, which obviously weighs pretty hard. Um, I don't know what happened to that couple. Um, I don't believe um, there were any fatalities on that day. Um, but, you know, you've sat with someone, they've given you a cup of tea and a cake, and you've said, hey, the fire comes, don't worry, we'll be here. Um, and, uh, yeah. We couldn't, we couldn't fulfill that promise, um, which was quite difficult, um, knowing full well that that house was gone um, from aerial imagery afterwards. You know, all their life savings forward into that farm. Um, it's all gone, and there's nothing you can do about it. So um, recognizing we can't get to them, we try and 
drive down this road. Um, trees are coming down. It's all on fire. You know, it's a bit of a bit of a game. Like Mario Kart, you're trying to dodge the trees that are coming down. Trucks are pulling out, and it's all kind of going to shit. Um, and we spend the next few hours doing evacuations um, up and down the road, just trying to get people out. Um, but this fire just completely caught everyone by surprise. And it was just an absolute scramble. And then we get back to uh, back to the depot. We can't account for all the crews. I mean, I've got a couple of trucks missing. We don't know where people are. Um, so we've got like an hour of that horrible gut-wrenching, um, where is everyone? Um, and that all kind of came to a head. And everyone everyone was accounted for, which was fantastic. Um, lost a bunch of houses. Um, but the thing that gets me about that day was during the day um, at about, I don't know, 10 o'clock or something, I got a phone call from my missus um, telling me that she was pregnant um, with our first kid. Um, and that day was a pretty close call. Um, so that's one of the other factors that kind of triggered me to spiral into kind of that PTSD um, kind of mindset. Um, I just It was just all too much. Um, very little respite, three days on, one day off. Um, I took a lot more time than some of the other guys just to try, try and maintain my relationship with my wife. You know, I didn't want to finish the season, be broken and divorced. Um, but yeah, those kind of two incidents are really kind of what what triggered me. I think. Yeah, well, it's something that I'm I'm hearing over and over again. Firstly, I think this is a huge thing. I talked to Ben about this too. Is sleep deprivation. So you know, you're again, we're leaning on these responders, um, especially if you're understaffed, <clears throat> where you know you're having to work multiple days. I just interviewed a, a doctor earlier today who they had the ice storm here in Texas. So, you know, people were stuck at home, people were stuck at fire stations, at hospitals. And again, they're just, they're working, you know, five, six days straight, all day, all night. So that's a huge element. But I've talked a lot about my career in, you know, in the fire service, especially as a paramedic, where I I just was the black cloud when it came to a cardiac arrest. I never got a patient back, like in the movies, you know what I mean? So even though it never took me to a dark place, I recognize, I see it as that guilt, that shame, that inability to save. And it seems to be the same thing when you're talking about giving the homeowner a pamphlet and a bottle of water or your promise to the the family with a hazelnut farm. It's that guilt, you know, when we go through school, you know, they're like, do X, Y, and Z, and you'll put the fire out. You'll save the house. You'll bring the person back from from near death. And it, and, and then in real life, it doesn't happen. And, you know, and when we're – I'm not saying anything in the education system is doing wrong, but I think we need to be a little bit more realistic in our training, and we need to forgive ourselves because when we have this – we buy into this fantasy that we're actually going to be able to save everyone. It sets us up for this huge fall when you don't, you know, and you feel just, again, shamed. You feel guilt. You feel like that person's death is, is because of me. I fucked up. So, you know, I'm seeing that same through line, that same kind of issue through the wildland firefighter's eyes with your story. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, I mean... For for me at least, like I, you know, this wasn't my first major fire. This wasn't my first major season. Even um, I've seen a lot of shit happen. Um, I think as we all do. Um, but this, I don't know. I I can't explain why. But these two just kind of hit a little bit differently, you know. Um, whether it was, you know, that the fact I wasn't sleeping, whether it was, you know, mum being sick all all the year before, um, whether it was just the season itself, and these events were going to get me regardless of whether I was, you know, slept, um, you know, well rested 
well fed, had nothing else on my mind. But uh, it's really funny is that you, you can't pick them. You can't pick what's going to get you because I think arguably um, I've been to much more um, difficult, probably more um, more confronting incidents and scenes. But uh, yeah, they, these got me, um, which is, yeah, I found really, really strange because I was always the one, you know, checking up on people. Um, I was always kind of aware of it. Um, it really, really, it snuck up on me and bit me on the ass, I think. Yeah, well, we all have our breaking point, you know what I mean? And I think that's that's why I talk about, you know, the trauma that some men and women take into the profession before they even threw a uniform on, you know, and then there's the sleep deprivation, the organizational stress, the, the, the relationship issues, uh, you know, there's so many compounding elements that you don't know when it's going to happen, you know, but trying to work out, you know, that's the, that's the thing we've done very badly, I think, in mental health, be like, oh, well, you know, Luke had that problem because he was in the Black Summer fire. Well, no. There was a combination. His mother almost died of cancer. I mean, there's all these areas, you know, he had this kind of sudden realization of mortality and, you know, responsibility when he found out he was about to be a dad. I mean, there's all these, these factors that create that perfect storm. So trying to pick one is again, the same as telling that firefighter, why aren't you in shape? You got to take all the variables into account. So tell me about, you know, that journey then where, you know, how, how deep into the darkness did you get? And then tell me about your kind of growth out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this would have been this event. I'm pretty sure was the 18th of December. Um, pretty sure. So, um, had that happen, obviously, uh, leading up to Christmas, I'd already put in for some time off. Um, a couple of the guys, um, we had a couple of younger guys on our crew, um, and they weren't too fussed about Christmas and all that stuff. Um, and obviously with mum and everything, I was like, you know what, um, if, if it's possible, I want to take Christmas and take a couple of days over Christmas off. Um, so, you know, we can all do the happy family thing, spend time together. Christmas is a big thing in my family. So, um, took that off and then moved into, um, kind of January. Um, obviously the season's still going quite significantly at this point. Um, did a, a number of jobs again up in the mountains, um, Nothing at that intensity, um, but it was the, the three days on, one day off. I was driving up. So I live, like I said, a kind of an hour north. So I was doing about a an hour and a half drive to the depot, getting in the truck at the depot, driving up to the airbase, um, you know, flying out to a remote area, either to cut a pad or cut line or do whatever was required at the time, put in a back burn and doing that driving home obviously my wife's pregnant now so the opportunity to stay on camp was there um but you know i, I didn't i felt guilty i didn't want to leave my wife at home pregnant um considering that she was already stressing about you know what had happened hearing on the news all the other issues so did all those um and then i think i couldn't put a date on it but i think it might have been around the, the 20th to the 30th of january um i basically came back from a shift um got home at about 10 o'clock um, and got a phone call and they're like, yep, um, so you're going here tomorrow, uh, somewhere up in the mountains. Um, can you be at the depot by four? Okay, so it's 10 o'clock at night. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I can't. And uh, yeah, just kind of just kind of broke down. Um, I don't know. I don't know why. Um, that, that was the kind of the thing that brought me over the edge The you know, hold up. So I've got to be I've got to sleep and I've got one, two, three, four hours. You want me to then run another 16 hour shift and then drive home and not crash. 
Um, then yeah, that that was it for me. So I had a big big breakdown. Um, my wife, my wife's fantastic. She basically pulled me aside and said, "Hey, all right, if you're not going to work and you can't do this, you're going to the doctor." And I was like, "Oh, let's see how I feel in the morning." As as guys do, I think, you know, especially firefighters, we have the doctor. I don't want to go unless I have to. <laughs> um, she she dragged me along. She put me in the car. She drove me to the doctor's the next day. Um, and I sat down. The doctor asked me what was up, and just uh, yeah, I burst into tears. Just uh, could couldn't even articulate what the issue was. Um, I was just that kind of fried. Uh, my hands were shaking. Um, hadn't been sleeping very well. Um, I kind of backtrack a little bit. After the events of kind of the the 18th, my alcohol consumption had kind of crept up. Um, being a, a mid 20s guy who's a firefighter, um, of course I consume beer, <laughs> despite what the doctor seems to think. Um, she was surprised when you know I said that the culture in the fire service is everyone has a few drinks after shift. It's just what happens, which isn't healthy. Not condoning it, but that's that was the reality of it. Um, but my alcohol consumption at that stage had really really creeped up. Um, so I kind of thought the shaky hands, I don't know, maybe they were linked. Um, but the doctor says, you know, all right, we're going to sit here and we're going to talk it through um, and basically kind of try and figure out what we can do to help you, which is really, really good. So so there for probably, probably in the doctor's office about an hour and a half, um, you know, maybe a little bit more, just kind of going through what was happening. Um, wasn't sleeping, was getting nightmares. Um, like I said, shaky alcohol consumption. All those warning things that you know you're taught to pick up on, but when you're in that moment, you don't necessarily consider it. Um, and she said, "Yeah, you know, without kind of too much uh, investigation, she said, look, I think you probably have a post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so you're not working; you're off work um, for the foreseeable future. Um, you can't go back to fires. You need to. You need to reset." She's she's quite got quite a dry sense of humor, my doctor. But she's like, you look like shit. You're upset. Um, like you need to you need to square yourself away before you can go back. You need time. You need to rest. So she gave me um gave me some Valium, which I I know is different in America, but here they don't prescribe medications like that very frequently. So the fact she prescribed me with Valium, I was like, okay, maybe this is a little bit more um serious than I thought it might be. So I took those and uh, went home. Um, and basically slept for three days um, when I could. Still have a nightmare, still not feeling great. Um, and then went back to see her, and we started kind of on the on the path of um, you know digging into it all. Um, so went on to take some antidepressants. Um, I was on Lexapro until about two weeks ago. Um, which is, it's, it's branded as an antidepressant. Um, the doctor described it more as an anti-anxiety because um, that's really what I was struggling with. Um, you know, I was hypervigilant. My temper was on a shoestring. Um, I was frustrated. I was grumpy. wasn't really eating. And, you know, all those, all those fun things that come along with it. But, um, you yeah, know, it, it took me a long time to dig myself out of it, to be honest, man. Like, I know we, we kind of got in touch. I think I reached out to you after one of your podcast in I don't know it might have been December and I think we were planning doing something around then and like I was I was still in a bad way you know I put my video out on YouTube and a few people reached out to me but um that was kind of that was a bit of a peak you know I've been through a number of troughs since then again so uh, it's not been an easy process it's been a, a lot a lot lengthier than I was first anticipating 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you think about the length of the career and all, all the, the different facets or facets, excuse me. You know, if you put your back out, you're not talking about being back to work in two weeks. You know, I mean, it took me five months to rehab my back injury and it was, you know, worth all the time. But, you know, it, it it's a, a long process to undo. You know, what did I hurt, I hurt myself when I was 39, 40, I think. Um, no, a little bit. Older than that, maybe like 42. But anyway, so all that years of, you know, of damage and then all the lack of recovery through the shifts and, you know, you can't just <laughs> say, all right, I'll see you next week. And then the, the mental stuff is the same. Now, did you ever get to, you know, a dark place of suicide ideation? Or was it more the anxiety and the hypervigilance? Um, I definitely, definitely got, got down there. Um, I don't think it's something I ever would have acted upon, but definitely kind of like, through the recovery, I'm like, fuck, this is hard. Maybe I can't do this, you know. Maybe it's easier um, to kind of just check out. Um, only only very, very briefly, um, kind of very, very aware of it. But, um, yeah, it's definitely something that I think without having such a good support network um, probably would have been um, something that could have happened, you know. I had very, very good friends and family. But, um, yeah, the, the, the dark places were dark and the nights were long when, you know, haven't slept for – Mate, there was there was days where, you know, sorry, not days. There was times where like I wouldn't sleep for like three days, um, just couldn't get to sleep. Um, you know, type of vigilance, flashbacks, just dark place, drinking too much. Um, you know, it's it's almost like in the media, it's kind of like romanticized PTSD. And I know that sounds terrible to say, but like you see the movies, you know, the, the fight, the soldier comes back and he fights his way through PTSD and at the end he's stronger and never comes back to get him. You know, he's, he's over it and it's never going to impact him. But I honestly think there's probably something of me that will, probably won't be the same ever again. Um, I don't know if kind of you can relate if you've ever had anyone that kind of says a similar thing. Um, but I definitely feel different. Um, you know, I'm much, much better now. There's almost like a, a kind of part of me will always kind of be a bit, I don't, know, I don't want to say damaged, but, um, you know, part of me will kind of always be, different after after those experiences yeah no i think i mean absolutely and that's a that's a common theme like no one says it's easy you know what i mean when they it's a constant self-checking you know and i think it's the same with with drinking you know i mean i i drink and right now like we literally hit the pause button march is my wife's birthday our anniversary my birthday st patrick's day and you know the end of that month we were like oh shit we need to (laughs) we need to hit pause again um, but so you, it's that constant self, you know, analysis. And it's interesting where you talked about your sports structure, because I think, again, with you having that good childhood, you got to that point where you never quite got down there. And I think that some more trauma in that pack prior to that is the difference between the people that live to tell the tale and the people that we lose. And one big, big thing that I, I'd like to ask people, um, because it's, it's a, such an important thing for us to understand is there's this horrific kind of, um, you know, rhetoric about suicide, like, oh, it was cowardly. Why'd they do it? You know, that's, that's a, you know, a coward's way out. But when you ask people that have been in that dark place, they say, I felt like I was a burden to my family. I felt like I was a relieving them of that burden. So it was actually in their mind, even though it's completely wrong and the wiring is all messed up, they were thinking of it as a selfless act. Now, what was your mindset at that point? Um, I think my wife would argue I'm always a burden to her. <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, no, I, 
I'm not sure. It's not something I've kind of really gone deep and thought about, to be honest. I, I guess it would probably be just, um, yeah, I, I wasn't obviously the most pleasant person to be around. Um, you know, I absolutely did my best. Um, and, uh, you know, never, never violent or anything like that, which is, I was really, really happy, thankful for. Um, I was quite worried when my temper started absolutely flaring, um, especially in the, in the early stages. Um, that I might get quite angry or abusive to my wife, but um, thankfully that wasn't something. Um, she she's very good at calling me on my bullshit. So I was being a, if I was being a bit of an asshole, she'd just call me and that kind of settled it down. But um, yeah, I don't know if it was a burden thing. I think it, to be honest, for me it was probably just more like I'm tired of being strong. If that makes sense, you know, I was getting all this really really positive affirmation from people being like, "Mate, well done. You know, you've you've put your hand up. You've You've got the help you need. Um, you're helping other people out, um, which I will go back to that. But I think that was that was definitely beneficial to me, helping other people in my recovery. But um, yeah, just getting the constant. Oh, you know, you're so strong. Well done for standing up. I'm like, I don't want to be strong anymore. I'm I'm tired of this. You know, this is supposed to be done. I've been doing this for well, I don't know, like 12 months at that point. And yeah, there was recovery, but um, you know, it would just take a small thing to send me back over. Um, which which is quite quite difficult. But I think the the I think very very young and naive. I think I might have. No, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. I think when I was young and stupid, I did kind of think maybe it was a cowardly thing to do. Um, but now I realise that it's not. Um, people only have so much, um, you know, kind of bandwidth in their life, and you know, and they can only do so much. Um, and I think everyone has that boiling point, regardless of the the key motivation behind it. Um, I think everyone hits that point, regardless of what their what their reason for it is you know and i think if someone hits the point who the fuck are you to say you know that was cowardly yeah no absolutely and that's another thing obviously that that just tired you know just just trying and trying and trying constantly get beaten down obviously is another element that comes up a lot well you mentioned about helping so when it comes to healing one of the most powerful things that I hear over and over again is when someone finds purpose, whether they've told their story and people come out of the woodwork, you know, asking for help because now they've, you know, they, they, they've created that conversation, whether they've started a nonprofit, whether they, you know, whatever it is, that altruistic element that, that I can help someone else seems to be not only great for the person being helped, but it seems like an incredibly powerful healing tool for the helper for the person that initially went through that so tell me about that element in yours yeah well i think i think um it's almost like you know when you're an instructor and you train someone yes you're definitely imparting your knowledge onto them but at the same time kind of you're reaffirming the knowledge that you know um and kind of building that strength i think reaching out and help and helping people with ptsd is kind of similar to that i don't know if i butchered that explanation or analogy but Kind of, it, I feel like it definitely kind of solidified my reasons as to why I'm, um, you know, putting it out there and, and um, why I'm trying to kind of explain it. So it's not something that is PTSD specifically isn't particularly discussed in the uh, in the fire services here. Obviously, I can't speak too much to fire rescue because I'm not, I've never been a member there. Between the rural fire service professionally, um, volunteering, uh, and then with national parks, it's. Um, I don't think it's something that's shunned. Um, I still think there's a stigma. I don't think it's openly shunned, but it's not something that's really discussed. So I think um, when I put my hand up 
um, and made that that video where, <laughs> you know, poorly unedited, the sounds terrible. You can hear crickets and my dog in the background, but basically just unloading everything that was happening um, at the time. Um, I it probably was the intent was for other people, but I think ultimately it helped me more than it helped other people. I think. Um, and then, like you said, people came out of the woodwork and I got, you know, messages and, um, you know, phone calls from people and, you know, just saying, A, didn't realize, didn't pick up on it. I'm really sorry. Um, or B, um, yeah, mate, I've been going through a similar thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, your videos, your videos really, really helped, which, uh, absolutely threw me. I was baffled. I was actually, um, I was at a, I was at a funeral. I was at a firefighter funeral, um, a couple of months back, um, Older, older gentleman, um, been with the service for ages, but uh, had some health complications. Um, who knows if they're related to the job or not. But um, he passed away. Um, we had a really, really big turnout. He's a key part of our of our district. Um, he did the after hours radio comms um, and dispatch uh, for years and years and years. So a uh, huge turnout, which is fantastic to honour him. But uh, at the end of the service, um, I had someone come up to me who who I looked up to. Um, you know, he was one of one of the instructors I'd worked with. Um, kind of brought me into the instructing group on one of the courses. Um, older than me, you know, kind of um, 10, 15 years older than me. But uh, he came up to me and said, hey, I am, um, you know, I watched your video and it kind of, it really made me check myself. And um, I think, um, I, I think I'm struggling the same way as you are. Um, and I've gone to get some help and uh, I hadn't even considered it until I watched your video and thought, you know, all the things you're saying, all the things that you're struggling with, you know, your hypervigilance, your lack of sleep, your increased alcohol consumption, these are all things I'm, I was going through as well. Um, and it, it took me hearing it from someone else for me to, to realize. Um, and then he said, you know, he, he went on to go get some help and sort of counselor and a psychologist and was really, was really back on the path. But, um, man, that was, that was powerful. That was, uh, yeah, you know, you leave, you leave yourself open and vulnerable and ultimately I don't care if people don't like it. I know there are a few people talking shit about what I put up there. I don't really care about that because that one person who came up to me and said, Hey, you helped me that. That's that's so much stronger than any negative feedback or any you know whispers or bullshit you hear walking around the place. It uh yeah I think I think it changed my recovery to be honest. Yeah, when you said about the the naysayers, what I found like very early on when I started doing this, and it wasn't even directly at me. It was someone would reshare something, and I'd see some of the comments with theirs. But honestly, I think the ones that that talk shit about it are actually secretly hurting themselves they just haven't given themselves permission to acknowledge it yet so we're lucky here I mean, i'm kind of in an echo chamber because obviously this project of people that you know are looking for help whether it's mentally physically whatever we're all trying to grow but um yeah. you know there's that facade of manliness especially amongst males and australia's you know i think the the epitome of that the ocker man you know i mean it's it's uh yeah, it's it, it's literally caricature though when you think about it. So vulnerability and honesty, if you think about that caricature, really smarts against it. But the reality is, we're all human beings. We were all toddlers once, you know, with with our whole lives ahead of us. So you became, you know, a firefighter, a police officer, a soldier, a construction worker you're still a human being and you've still got, you know, that innocence and that desire to do good in the world. So when you don't show yourself that forgiveness and that compassion, that becomes incredibly toxic. And I see a lot of people that lash out, um, you know, are most likely people that just are hurting, but they haven't processed it yet. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. I think, um, the, like you said, the, almost the, the caricatural perspective or view of a, of an Australian bloke is, a uh, it's dangerous, I think, 
It's uh, it's dangerous in that it doesn't leave any room for quote unquote weakness. Um, if you get what I mean, you know, you can't really open up. Um, my my mates are all my my close friend group, um, mostly from the station, um, and, and from headquarters who I work with. But um, I'm very very able to open up to them. But I don't think it's something that many blokes, particularly kind of around my age, have. Um, the you know easy going, but also working really hard, but then taking everything on the chin, but then being absolutely fine at the end of the day. It doesn't quite jibe you know it, it can't be real it's not it's not um something that can be maintained if you get what i mean you know you can't be easy going work your ass off see horrific shit and still be absolutely fine um no one can um <laughs> but that seems to be the kind of the 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 view that kind of australian men have either been kind of trained into or it's kind of a societal thing where that's just how we are and that's what i have to do to deal with it um, I find, obviously, I still have mates in the UK. I find opening up and talking about shit you're struggling with seems to be far more um, acceptable um, in the UK than it does here. Um, that's obviously based on my limited exposure to, to both. But, um, yeah, here it just seems to me like guys just don't open up. And it is changing. Um, but I, I do wonder if, you know, what the what the damage has been over the last five, ten years when it's kind of been from kind of inception to it being okay to now where, I reckon you probably get 50% of blokes to kind of open up to other blokes about what they're struggling with, whereas five years ago, there was no way that would happen. Yeah. Well, there's, there's two kind of, um, I guess, uh, at- methods of attack or perspectives, or however you want to kind of word it, um, that I try and do on this show. Firstly is, and I'm not seeking these people out, this isn't a totally organic thing, but I've got now a list of Australian SAS, you know, British SAS, SBS, Navy SEALs, Rangers, PJs, Marine Recon, all these uber, uber, you know, male and female alphas, if you like, that have come on the show. And as part of the conversation, they'll talk about the shit that bothers them. And they'll talk about it. some of them have been in tears. I have one of my, my good friends now, Jason Gardner, was a Navy SEAL commander for 30 years. And he tells us. Right. Amazing, amazing. And he was you know, so vulnerable. His wife, Iris, actually told an incredibly powerful story as well. So that's one thing. You take the manliest of men and the womanliest of women and they tell their stories. It kind of calls bullshit on the rest of us. But the other thing is, which I think is such a powerful way of looking at this whole thing, you hurt your back, okay? And you just say, I'm going to work through it. How effective are you really going to be on the fire ground? You know, you're a fucking liability. You know, you know, you're, you're going to get worse and worse. And it's going to get, you know, you're going to hurt yourself more. You're going to have more bulges in the discs. And ultimately, you're going to be break, you know, break. And you might need to be the person that gets dragged off a fire ground. And meanwhile, the victim dies. Conversely, you hurt your back. You immediately take time off. You start working on, you know, your physical therapy, your, you know, your chiropractic, whatever. You adjust or you, you address whatever elements that made you, uh, the imbalances that caused that injury. So when you come back, you're actually more resilient and stronger than you were before you hurt yourself. This mental health issue is no different. You want to be an even more manly man? Address the shit that's going on in your head. It's as simple as that. So you be a more of an elite operator, elite firefighter, elite police officer if you process your trauma, grow from it, and then that's how you foster grit. 
I, I 100% agree. I think um, underlying mental health or, you know, kind of just shit going on in people's head is probably more dangerous than a physical injury because um, you have no idea when it's going to blow up, what form it's going to blow up into, um, or kind of the, the potential repercussions. You know, at least with the back, you might go down. Um, you know, worst case scenario, someone could die, but, you know, someone losing their mind, they could, you know, um, you know, lose a, not only a victim, but, you know, their crew, or, you know, they could be an absolute liability on the fire ground. Um, I, I really, really agree with that that kind of idea, uh, which is why I, um, so I pulled myself away from the volunteer side um, after I got injured. Um, I basically took nearly nearly a year off um, at the expense of my officer position. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it was bound to happen. Um, I still put my hand up um, in case they needed me, um, but obviously wasn't around. So that kind of made it, it, an easy decision for them. Um, I was chatting to one of my best mates. He's, um, he's uh, two IC at the, at the brigade, and I also work with him at headquarters. But um, we were having this debate about kind of mindset and where people are at he was in the army for 10 years um artillery and then a number of other things in uh, the australian defense force but um we had that a real real good discussion about how particularly as officers how do you catch someone um when they're not willing to kind of help themselves you know particularly with something like a you know mental health struggle or, or carrying some some baggage in their head how do you most effectively um well first of all identify um, what the issue may be or that they have an issue um, and then how do you approach that person um, without offending them without you know um, them feeling attacked uh, or feeling kind of isolated and singled out um, we, we spoke about it for quite a while we didn't actually get any kind of um, any any progress as to the best way to do it um, but it's just something for fire officers well not just fire officers for, for anyone in a leadership position in emergency services and military to to consider, you know, when was the last time you got training on identifying the mental health of your crew and potentially helping um, an issue before it evolves? Because I've not seen that course. No, exactly. And I think that that's another thing that I talk about as well. I mean, I don't know how it is in definitely not with you guys, but maybe with, um, you know, the regular fire service, the, the urban fire service there. But we spend a lot of money in our hiring practices on polygraphs and psych evals and the reality is these are people checking boxes so if something happens during our career they can say well we did test a and test b so we covered our ass what i want to yeah, see exactly so what i want to see is take that same money because those two are useless i mean i've lied my way through all my polygraphs and it's not me being, you know, some pretentious dickhead. It's just you had to lie. If you weren't, you know, none of us were choir boys and that's what they want. So we have to kind of be a little conservative with the truth. Um, yeah, but, I really uh, understand. Yeah, but, and then the psych test is an absolute BS too. So taking that same money and at the front door, giving us, you know, three, four counseling sessions as we go through training, orientation, whatever, you know, process it looks like. So then you've created a normality from day one of speaking to a counselor. Every time you start feeling like you need to, a little, you know, little checkup, a little reset, you go and see that counselor. So you always have that go-to, you always have that buffer. The same way as, you know, you would go and see your doctor if you had whatever health concern that was worrying you. So I think that's a huge, huge thing. You know, then that creates normality in the service and therefore around the kitchen table then in the firehouse, that's another tribe that you can lean into. But if we don't have that 
at the very beginning of the profession being a norm, you know, being the norm, then it's very hard when we're on the back foot later in our career. Absolutely, absolutely. And you've got to, um, you know, you'll never be like, you know, we've got a fresh station with a fresh crew. No one here has any experience. You just need to draw a line in the sand and implement it. But I do wonder if the kind of the pushback from potential, you know, older members or younger members or whoever, um, you know, just it's one of those things where there may not be an optimal time to implement that strategy. Um, line in the sand. It happens now. Your counseling sessions are compulsory. Bitch about it for 12 months. And then three years later, when you're feeling much better about yourself and you haven't had a, you know, a bit of a mental breakdown because of the stuff you've seen, thank us for it. Um, I, I wish that was something we could do here. Um, obviously, your your professional and your salaried fire services is much easier to kind of mandate things like that. Um, in a volunteer perspective, it's it's a lot harder. Um, it's that fine juggling act between balancing member numbers um, and maintaining that standard. Um, and sometimes it can be a little bit skewed the wrong way. Um, but I think I think moving forward, if we can start normalizing, even even if people don't want to open up to their mates about it, even if we're not talking about our feelings around the table. That's fine, but normalizing going to a counseling session as if you were going to, you know, like physio. You know, some of the guys knock off early for a shift and be like, "Yeah, I'm heading to physio." You know, change that, change that mindset to, "Yeah, I'm going to counseling." Oh yeah, sweet. You know, go work on your mind, sort that stuff out instead of you know, go work out your quad and get that not sorted out. Um, that's what I would like to see in the future because I don't know how many lives it would save overall. Beautiful. Well, I think that's a great place to transition to some closing questions. Um, the one, the first one that I like to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or completely unrelated. Ooh, I read a lot. Um, I actually read a lot, so it's a hard one. Um, and it can be more than one book if you have a handful. Yeah. Um, well, there's a good book I know from a bloke called uh, James Gearing. Um, I, I quite <laughs> recommend that one. I like no, honestly, but before I get into my books, I I listen to the audio version because um, I find I retain more. But mate, I was a really, really big fan of your your book. Not blowing smoke up your ass. I thought you kind of hit the uh, the difficult questions from the perfect angle. Beautiful. Well, thank so, um, you. I recommended it around to a few people. No, no, mate, good work deserves good recognition. In terms of um, books, I like. I really, really enjoyed Smoke Jumper um, by Jason Ramos. Um, I know you had him on the pod. Um, that was that was a cracking read, um, particularly for someone looking kind of going into the kind of remote area, uh, kind of more um, more physical wildland stuff. I just thought that was a good read. Um, gives you a good background on smoke jumping as well. In terms of leadership stuff, um, I like most of the stuff that Jocko puts out. Uh, Jocko Willink. Um, I like his uh, dichotomy of leadership um, and the other one, which is his first one, uh, Extreme Ownership. I think that's uh, that should be compulsory reading for, for officers in the fire service. Uh, in terms of uh, a good read to kind of pass some time, um, I quite like Marine, um, which is the uh, the kind of biography on, um, on Chesty Puller, uh, which is really, really enjoyable. Um, you know, it kind of goes through an absolutely crazy career um, well-written, um, and kind of you can just open a chapter, read a chapter, zone out for a bit, and, um, and kind of put it down and then pick up exactly where you left off. It's very well-written. Um, in terms of technical firebooks, um, you know, all that stuff, Kirk's Fire Investigation, Step Up and Lead, 
Um, even getting a bit of knowledge around kind of the NFPA stuff, which we don't really use here, um, has been beneficial for me um, as an officer. Um, and yeah, I don't really read much um, much nonfiction. Sorry, much fiction. It's mostly um, books that I can implement or books that books on people that you know I respect and look up to. Um, I won't go into all the others, but yeah, heaps and heaps and heaps. I might send out a reading list one day. But uh, yeah, I think those those probably are a good broad selection of uh, of what I like to read and what I'd recommend. Beautiful. Now there's some great books on that list. Thank you so much. All right. Well, then, what about a, a movie and or documentary that you love? Movie and documentary. Hmm. Um, I'm a big fan of Terminator 2. Um, I know it's a little bit before my time, but um, I really, really like that movie. Um, in terms of documentary, I watch a lot of docos as well. Um, something fire related. Um, you've got me to blank, mate. You've got me to blank. But I mean, most most documentaries are beneficial in some way as long as it's on a topic that you can either implement or you're interested in. Beautiful. Well, if you haven't seen them yet, um, I think it's Fire in Paradise is the first one. And then I think, oh, God, what was the second one? Um, like Paradise Recovering. Yeah, yeah, I saw Fire in Paradise. That was on Netflix. Yeah, so the sequel um, is actually them, you know, a few weeks after the fire. So if you haven't seen that, I highly recommend that one. Fantastic. I'll, I'll definitely check that one out. Um, one, I guess, to give a bit of context for people about um, the season is, uh, is Black Summer. Um, I'm pretty sure that's available on YouTube at the moment, and it just covers a kind of broad overview of uh, the 2019-2020 season um, for us. Um, and yeah, man, I, uh, I really enjoy this. Thanks so much for having me on. No problem, mate. And just for everyone listening that were confused about the Decembers, if you're not aware, Australia's summer is winter for us. So, <laughs> Yeah. Yes, I probably should go into that as well. <laughs> no, no worries. It's a, it's a quick, you know, fact check. Um, all right. Well, the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Oh, I reckon you might have a good chance getting our former commissioner on. Um, Shane Fitzsimmons, um, AFSM. Um, he was our commissioner during the, he was our commissioner for a number of years our commissioner during the 2019-2020 season um, and he's now the commissioner for Resilience New South Wales which is um, a new government body in, in response to um, the season um, basically focusing on resilience and what happens when you know the fire trucks leave but we're not quite at the rebuild stage um, I'll see what I can do I might be able to get an email for you um, I would absolutely love you to interview him he's, um, he's a great bloke um, he's been in the fire service for a number of years he, um, he actually lost his father um, during a during a, a hazard reduction burn, um, just down the road from where I'm currently located, um, his father worked for national parks. Um, they passed away on that fire, and then Shane went through and ticked off, you know, youngest ever officer, youngest group officer, um, you know, youngest commissioner. Um, not only a a resume that you know is very very well polished and looks great, he's um, a genuinely nice bloke, um, and. Re- Yes, for everyone um, that he's kind of in charge of. He um, did a great job for us um, as our commissioner. And I think he'd have some interesting perspectives on um, not only things like, you know, fitness uh, and, and training standards, but also on the larger issues like, you know, fuel management, um, urban interface sprawl uh, and things like that. 
Beautiful. Yeah, I would love that. If we could we could try and reach out to him or you know get me an email, then I will do my damnedest to get him on. Because I think the more perspectives we get from all over the world, the more you know knowledge sharing we can do and we can pluck ideas from each other. So I love that. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure people know where to find you and your YouTube channel, what do you do to decompress? What do I do to decompress? Um, I read a fair bit, like I said. Um, at the moment, I'm bang into training again. Um, I'm really, really back into training, which has been great. Um, I'm doing a lot of um, strongman type stuff. Um, one of my good mates, he just recently opened a gym. Um, shout out to Kevin at Soul Bay Fitness. Um, really, really getting, that be- getting me back into it. So training, heavy weights. There's something about just putting headphones in and just lifting heavy things. Um, I try and make sure I stay as functional as possible. Um, but there's got to be something said for chasing a PR, um, whether it be, you know, your bench or squat um, or anything like that. Um, other than that, hang out with the family. My daughter's uh, just turned seven months, um, and I'm really, really enjoying having her around, um, which, you know, everyone should say, but um, <laughs> I'm genuinely genuinely loving her, loving having her around. Um, she's been great. We've been doing some kind of family days out. We took her to the aquarium the other day. Um, and I just think those things are really, really good for just my mental health, kind of checking myself um, and realizing that, you know, there's a bigger picture um, and, you know, that it's all over now and, you know, we're here and she's around and, um, you know, life does get better. And I think um, just want to put that out there as well for everyone who might be going through some shit. Um, it's a hard process. Um, but it does get better. Um, but reach out to people. Um, you're not going to do this on your own. Um, no one can. So reach out and chat to people, whether it be, you know, medical professional, friends, family, um, you know, me, James. Uh, reach out and, uh, you know, just talk it through because you'll find that the more you talk about it, the easier it gets. I'm not saying it ever gets perfect, but uh, it gets easier. And once you can kind of start articulating it, you'll find that you're probably processing it, which in itself will kind of speed up the recovery. Absolutely. I think one of the most misunderstood elements too is that most people want to help. They just need to be given an opportunity to do so. So by asking for help, you'll probably be amazed how many of your friends, family, whoever your tribe is that you choose to lean on are just, you know, dying for the opportunity to be that that shoulder for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Brilliant. All right. Well, then if people want to reach out to you, if they want to find you, your videos, where are the best places online? Um, so I am the King Robo on Facebook. Um, you should find me. Um, I am the bloke with the dodgy mustache. Um, that this comes is up the as fire a- service. There's a lot of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I, uh, I've embraced it during COVID. Um, it's quite good. <laughs> um, YouTube. Um, if you just put in Luke Roberts, L-U-C space Roberts. Um, I'm on there. I've been fairly uh, fairly lazy with YouTube recently. I've kind of been focusing on me and my family more, um, but I'm starting to uh, to implement some new things there. Um, based on your advice, James, after we spoke the first time, I might uh, consider you know getting some people on and chatting. I'm thinking about maybe getting some of the guys that I work with on and just kind of talking about some issues. So uh, yeah, if you're interested, check that out. Um, otherwise, that's pretty much it. I'm not massive on social media. I'm not on Twitter or anything. But um, yeah, reach out. Um, any dramas or anything, send me an email, which is linked to my YouTube account. Love to hear stories. Um, love to get comments. Um, if you want to hate on me, please send me a message so I can rebuttal it and take your part. Um, yeah, all those fun things. Beautiful. Well, Luke, I just want to say thank you. I mean, you know, like you said, when we first 
talked, you know, you, and I hear this a lot, you know, I've had multiple guests that either, you know, we were supposed to do an interview and then they kind of went dark for a while or, you know, a couple of times as one of my good friends, Bull, we did the interview and he wasn't in a good place. And I told him like, look, this, this wasn't you. So we basically scrapped it and gave him time to process what he was going through. And then we sat down again and got a, you know, fantastic interview. So I think, you know, good on you for that. I like how you identified that and said, Hey, Maybe this isn't it. That's great. Yeah, but, but but that's just it. You know, I want I want people to be able to to tell their story in a way that they're comfortable, rather than as you said, that hyper vigilant, angry, you know, whatever it manifests in. So hearing you now, with being able to help other people, you know, immersing yourself and your family, jumping back into the gyms now they're open and your friends got this new gym. I mean, it shows to me just these common denominators over and over again, that tribe, that fitness, that family, that nature. So it's so good to hear that you're on that path. And like you said, it's not perfect. It's not going to be easy. Life is a roller coaster. But, you know, you're just acquiring the strength and acquiring the tools to deal with the adversity. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for being so courageous and telling your story and, and being so... um generous with your time today right thanks for having me it's been a it's been really good to, to have a chat and uh like i said I've, I've been a fan for a while so it's a bit surreal to be on um bit of imposter syndrome with uh, the lineups you've had recently but uh thanks i really appreciate it